Let me invite your attention this morning to the book of Acts. We've been talking uh, about going from the empty tomb to the upper room. And uh, this is actually the end of what throughout church history has been called Easter Tide or the Easter season. Maybe some of you are not aware that there is an Easter season, like we have the 12 days of Christmas. Christmas is more than just you know a couple days. You celebrate quite a while for the Christmas season. And the same is true of Easter. And uh, we begin with the Passion Week, and um, it goes through uh, from the, the day that we remember the resurrection of the Lord. You have 40 days till Ascension Day, and then after Ascension Day, you have 10 more days until you come to Pentecost Sunday, and that kind of concludes and wraps up the Easter season. So we're still, still celebrating Easter, and we conclude the celebration of Easter uh, as we commemorate this morning uh, the outpoured presence of the Holy Spirit on His church, on His followers, and the birthday of the Christian church. We kind of have focused around on this idea of being unprepared and how it seems to me like a very short time, uh, just really 50 days, uh, in which the disciples needed to correct uh, their understanding and their confusion about who Jesus was and why he came. Sometimes if you think about things being unprepared, it's not all that appealing. We have a, if you take the ingredients of a cake and you try them one by one, um, it's not that great. I, I know uh, guys that have been into fitness, really hardcore, that that will drink raw eggs, and uh, I'm not sure I could ever bring myself to do that. Dry flour is not very appealing. I suppose just maybe the sugar by itself, that has some flavor and some pleasant taste to it, but still, you know, that you can't just enjoy spoonfuls of sugar. Maybe helps the medicine go down, but um, it's not great just to eat spoonfuls of sugar. When, when those ingredients have been mixed together, you have something that's a little bit better. You know, you have batter. I know there are people at my house that think they enjoy eating batter almost as much as they enjoy the finished product. But you know what's really good is when you bring all of those unprepared ingredients together, there, there is a blending that happens, but the, the chemical reactions that are meant to take place when a cake bakes does not happen until that 
batter goes into the oven and the heat is applied and then all of those ingredients begin reacting to one another in the way that they're intended to and it rises and you have a nice cake, a good finished product. As we think about the disciples having been unprepared for the work that they were about to do and going out into the world. They had a lot of ingredients that had come together in their lives. They had lived and walked and learned with Jesus for three years. And then after the resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, they had to have this full paradigm shift because they were still thinking in terms of an earthly political type king and then they find that they have a king or they have a messiah who came to lay down his life on the cross but then he rose again and and they're figuring all of these things out these are the the four things that we've talked about these last about six weeks or so i'm not saying that these are the only issues that were dealt with in the lives of the disciples between the resurrection and pentecost but i believe these are the primary issues And the first is simply they were reassured by Jesus in order to believe in him again. You know, there was something about their mind. They could not believe, they could not put their faith in a crucified Messiah until they began to understand God's bigger plan, God's bigger picture. They were reminded of their commitments in order to follow again. And this has to do with that part of the story after Jesus had rose from the grave and, and uh, Peter and some of the other disciples found themselves seemingly with nothing to do. And Peter said, I, I guess I'm going to go fishing. Who wants to join me? And he and about six others of the disciples went out fishing again. And it's in that story that Jesus comes to them and they again experience a tremendous catch of fish. Just like what happened the first time Jesus called them to come and follow him. And I see in that a reminder of their commitment to follow Jesus, and, and Jesus kind of reminding them, saying, hey, you, you, you can still follow me. You should still follow me. They were re-taught, re-educated about Jesus from the law and the prophets in order to help them learn to embrace the cross. And then they were reconnecting with each other through Jesus to learn to love each other. I believe these are the primary issues. They could not have been prepared for the outpoured presence of the Holy Spirit without settling these issues in their hearts. And friends, neither can you and neither can I receive the outpoured presence of the Holy Spirit without having these issues settled in our hearts. To fully believe in Jesus Christ, to be fully committed to following Him, to embrace the cross to the point that we're willing to lay everything that that matters to us, to lay it all down. And then that commitment to one another, to love God supremely and then to love each other. I believe these are primary if we are to receive the outpoured presence of the Holy Spirit in His fullness. And in the lives of the disciples, the Pentecost moment when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, that is that moment when the, the 
like the cake batter going into the oven and the heat being applied. I'm not saying that they came out of that as a finished product. They still had some learning and growing to do as you and I, after our personal Pentecost experience, we'll never reach the point in this life where we cease to grow and draw closer to Christ as Christians. However, there's something about that moment when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in our hearts and lives in His fullness that brings all of the ingredients together in a way that makes sense and helps to make us what God intends for us to be as Christians. So let's read about this account of Pentecost, if you will, from Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost, by the way, means 50, which is 50 days after Passover. It was a Jewish feast day, festival day, and it has become now for the church a high and holy day when we remember the birthday of the church and the outpoured presence of the Spirit. All the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's worth noting. They heard in their own language, not an unknown tongue. Verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Let's bow our hearts for just one more moment of prayer. Holy Father, again, we thank you for the blessed gift of your Spirit. We ask in these remaining moments that we have together that you will touch our hearts and speak to us by your spirit, through your word, by whatever means you decide is appropriate. And Lord, would you help each one of us to have our hearts and lives open fully to your spirit to come and and take up residence in our hearts, in our lives, and be fully at home there. We'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read this story, there's a lot that would jump out at us and catch our attention. A lot of phenomenological language, a sound like rushing wind, 
and uh, tongues of fire that came and, and uh, speaking in other languages and all of these things catch our attention. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is what happened what really happened on the day of Pentecost? And in this try and connect the, the, uh, the happenings on the day of Pentecost to the bigger, grander narrative of what God is doing in Scripture. The first thing that I see happening on the day of Pentecost is this, and this is probably not something any of you have uh, considered before, but the first thing is the renewal of the kingdom of Israel. The renewal of the kingdom of Israel. God, on the day of Pentecost, sent His Spirit, and His Spirit coming was something that was expected by God's people, but it happened in an unexpected way. If we go back to the Old Testament, there are numerous passages of Scripture that talk about the, uh, the, the moving of God by His Spirit and the restoration of Israel. Uh, the verse, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book, all the words I have spoken to you, for the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Numbers of other verses that we could read there in uh, Jeremiah chapter 30. Uh, but if we go over to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, we'll read another similar, uh, similar passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 11, uh, the prophet says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What is that referring to? Well, that's referring to the coming of the Messiah, the one who would come from David's line and be the Savior, not just of the nation of Israel, but the Savior of the world. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. We go on down to read verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Uh, skip down to verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pethros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Now, I suppose one of the things that I should make clear here is that when prophets were shown by God a picture of the future, what we seem to see in Scripture is a glimpse of the future that looks like one mountain in front of another mountain. And you know from experience, if you've traveled in, in parts of the country where there's mountainous terrain, you may look and you may see a range of mountains. And you see one mountain and you may see a higher uh, peak behind it. And it may look as if that higher peak is part of the same mountain. But in reality, those two, if you could get a sideways view, you would see that those two mountains 
are separated by miles of valley in between. And sometimes that seems to be what we see in the prophetic visions of the prophets, because you may look here and see, well, here in Isaiah chapter 11, he prophesies about the, uh, the uh, lion or the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard lie down with the young goat. And, and you may say, Pastor, that's, we don't see that happening yet. How can you say that this in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of the renewal of the kingdom of Israel? And I would tell you, yes, there are portions of this that we do not see happening yet. But there are parts of it that we have seen happen already. And I believe that Pentecost is the beginning of the renewal of the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus' disciples asked him about this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. He said, uh, they said to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I've always thought of that passage in terms of end-time events. And I've never considered before the possibility that Pentecost may have been the beginning of that restoration. Some of you may be wondering about this, and that's okay. You, you're welcome to, to disagree um, and I, I won't uh, insist that I'm right about this, but I believe we see it pretty clearly in the Scripture. Look at Acts chapter 2, again, verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. What does that say? Gentiles? No, Jews. There were Jews. There were devout men from every nation under heaven. And Luke goes on to name 15 disparate parts of the world that was known at that time from which all of these people had come together. And they were there. Now, verse 11 says Jews and proselytes. Proselytes were people who, who were not ethnic Jews, but they had been converted to the Jewish religion. The men had been circumcised. They had become Torah observant. They had begun to live according to the Jewish way of life. So they were all Jews. They had all come together. And so the first people to be truly impacted by the outpoured presence of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost were who? Who were they? They were Jews. And later on, when we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, after Peter has preached to them, he says to them, this is the end of his message. And this is very interesting, and I want to try to make two connections for you. In Acts chapter 2 verse 36, he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Who is he preaching to? He's not preaching to Gentiles. He's preaching to the house of Israel. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, I think Luke wants us to connect with that phrase, the house of Israel. Go back, if you have your Bible handy, go back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 22 Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus 
says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Well, what happened on the day of Pentecost? Luke named 15 places throughout various parts of the known world at that time, and they had all come back together to Jerusalem, to their own land. Verse 25, what's God going to do? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, or, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." This is the renewal of the kingdom, the beginning of the renewal of the kingdom, of, not the completion, but it is the beginning of the renewal of the kingdom of Israel. Also, we see on the day of Pentecost the reversal of the Tower of Babel, the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Now, I do want to say this is a secondary part of the story and not a primary part of the story. This is not like the most important thing that happened at Pentecost, but it is part of what happened at Pentecost. And what I want to highlight for you here is a difference or or a contrast of the attitudes of the people. In Genesis chapter 11, we read about the Tower of Babel in verses 1 through 9. I'm not going to take the time to read through the whole story other than just to say this. These were people who had gathered together against God and against God's plan for his creation and for the world. And they said, you see, God's plan was for his creation to scatter and populate the earth. And these people said, no, we are not going to do that, but rather we're going to gather together in one place, build a city for ourselves, a city that will reach up into the heavens. And you see, friends, it was an attitude of rebellion against God's plan. They were disobedient to God's commandments, and their pride was what was motivating and moving them to resist what God wanted for them. And the story in Genesis 11 says that their language was unified. They all had one language. And they had this new technology. They knew how to make bricks. And God said, with their technology and with their united language, there is nothing that they try that will be too hard for them to accomplish. And so it says God came down and confused their languages so that they no longer understood one another and could work together. On the day of Pentecost, we see the reversal of that in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. 
It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In verses 7 and 8, we see the people that are listening being amazed and astonished. Understand these are people, uh, as I mentioned, from 15 different parts of the known world at that time. They had all come together as Jews. Uh, Understand they they were of a single culture, but not a single uh, ethnicity. There was multiple ethnicities, but they were all Jews. But they'd all come together, and they hear each one in their own language, and they're amazed and astonished and say, aren't these all Galileans? How is it that we all hear in our own native tongue as they proclaim the mighty works of God? You see, what they were doing as they came out of the upper room was testifying. They were testifying to the power of God and what God had done. And as you look at the attitude behind this, you remember we've been talking for about six weeks now about God working in the, the lives of the disciples to help them understand what Jesus was all about, to bring them from the day of resurrection to the day of Pentecost. And what we see in their hearts and in their attitudes is the, the exact opposite of the people that were gathered at the Tower of Babel. We see an attitude of submission to God's will. They are wanting to do what God has told them to do. They're they're demonstrating that through obedience. Jesus said, don't, you, you go back and wait in Jerusalem, tarry until you are endued with power from on high. And so I'm sure there were probably some of them that were sitting around thinking, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what we're waiting for, but Jesus said to wait. And so we're going to wait. And I believe there was praying and seeking, and I, I, I happen to believe there was fence mending going on between those different disciples as they came together in this attitude of submission, obedience, and humility. And the result of that is that God worked supernaturally to help them understand one another cross-culturally and even across language barriers for the specific purpose of propagating the message about the kingdom of God, the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Finally, uh, this morning, or or thirdly, I have one more point after this. Third, the realization of the new covenant. The realization of the new covenant. Not, again, not the completion of the new covenant, but the realization. You know, when Jesus came preaching and and healing, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means not that it's nearby or soon, but that means it's here. The kingdom of heaven is here. I believe Pentecost demonstrates the realization of the new covenant. If you would look with me back to the book of Deuteronomy, we read in Deuteronomy a number of verses uh, about the earlier covenant, chapter 5 and uh, verse 22. We read these words. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets and gave them to me. This is the, the, the actual physical 
part of the old covenant, the, the covenant that God made with his people Israel through Moses. Verse 23, as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. That was something that they didn't believe could ever happen, that somebody could speak with God and survive. But they were still afraid, and so they said to Moses, Why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear. This is what the people said to Moses. Moses, you go near on our behalf. Hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us, all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Now listen to this. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear and to keep my commandments. Now look at chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. Uh, now look at chapter 7, verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. This is a picture of the earlier covenant that God had made with his people through Israel. Again, chapter 8. Verses 1 and 2, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And you see, the sad part about it is, is that God and even Moses seemed to know that his people were not going to succeed in keeping all of the old covenant. That's one of the reasons why God said to Moses, Oh, that my people would have a heart, would have a spirit like this always to obey me. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we read these words. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Now, there's, there's something in between that we missed, we didn't read. 
But just remember, basically, God promised blessing for his people when they obeyed him. He would take care of them. He would multiply their crops and the fruit of their womb and their labor and their efforts and everything would be blessed of the Lord. But he said, if you don't, then I will bring the curses of this covenant upon you and you will be scattered into all the various parts of the land. You will not be able to be a part of this homeland any longer. And here in chapter 30, we read these words. After you've been scattered... And you call them to mind, the words of the Lord, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. You see, this new covenant that God wanted to make, we read about in Jeremiah chapter 31. We, we referenced it a few moments ago, but we go back there once more. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 31. And do you remember what God said to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 5? You remember he said, to, he said to Moses, Oh, that my people had such a heart as this always to obey me and keep my commandments. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read about the promise of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is when we see this beginning to happen. That's on the day of Pentecost, the the realization of the new covenant that God promised. And you see, friends, the, the wonderful part about this new covenant is that it is a covenant not just with the nation of the Jews, But it is a covenant that is to be far-reaching to all the nations of the world. In Genesis chapter 12, we read about the beginning of God's relationship with the nation of the Jews. That was through a man named Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family, leave your home, and go to the place that I will show you. And I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And through you, Abraham, will all the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read Jesus' response to the disciples' question when they ask him about restoring the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has placed under his own control, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and all Judea and unto Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And this is the beginning, friends, of God keeping that promise that he gave to Abraham all of those many, many years ago. It began when the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. We can read about it. You can follow it happening throughout the book of Acts. Just a few chapters later, I think it's Acts chapter 8, we read about Philip taking the gospel to Samaria and, God, and preaching there. And the Samaritans come and they receive uh, the, the baptism of Jesus Christ. And then the, the Jerusalem church hears about this revival at Samaria and they go and they preach to them about the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, we read the story about Peter going to the household of Cornelius. Wonderful, wonderful story. And as he comes back, you see Cornelius was the first one. He and his household, they seem to be the first of of the non-Jews. They don't know. They're not followers of the Jewish religion. But God deals with Peter and speaks to him and tells him to go. And he goes and he preaches. And God poured out his Holy Spirit upon Cornelius and his household just as he had on the other disciples on the day of Pentecost. And when Peter comes back to Jerusalem, he kind of gets called on the carpet for what he had done. He'd gone and eaten with Gentiles. Horrors. Spent time with them. It stayed, apparently, probably stayed in their house. And, and Peter reports back to the church and tells them what happened and how the Holy Spirit came upon them, just as he had on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it says, When they, that is the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Praise God. Aren't you glad for the granting to the Gentiles? That's me. And that's you for the repentance that leads to life. I want to close this by just talking to you a little bit about the fire. Because probably what is... What was most noteworthy about what happened on the day of Pentecost is this phenomenon of fire coming. In Psalm 15, the psalmist asks this question, Who will ascend to the hill of the Lord and who will dwell in your tabernacle? And he goes on to answer, He that has clean hands, a clean outward life, and a pure heart, a pure, a clean inward life. Throughout Scripture, fire has been the symbol of God's presence. Temples are these places that we read about in Scripture where God's space exists in the same dimension as the human space. And it happens in a variety of ways. We see the first example of this when Moses encounters God in the burning bush. This bush that's on fire and is not burned up. And Moses turns aside to see what's happening. And he hears the voice coming from the bush that says, Moses, don't come any closer. The place that you are standing on is holy ground. In other words, this is God's space. We see it happening in the tabernacle as Moses receives the instruction from God to build this this tent 
ark-like structure where the ark of the covenant with its mercy seat on top, that place where God's presence is said to inhabit, and this is his special house, the tabernacle. And when all has been completed according to the plan that God gave Moses and the sacrifices have been made and the, the lamb's blood has been applied to the altar and, and to, the, uh, to the ark of the covenant, all of these various items, then God's presence comes down like a cloud and fills that space. It happens again when Solomon built his grand temple and dedicated it and, and the animals were sacrificed and the high priest applies the blood of the sacrificial animals to the altar and to the various implements uh, of worship within the tabernacle and God's presence comes in fire and fills and inhabits that holy space. You see, every one of those, the, burn, the, the, the tabernacle and the temple, each one required the, the sacrifice of an animal for the purifying and the atonement of the people and the cleansing and the consecrating of the implements of worship. And when that was, you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. And when that was complete... The mark of God's presence and the acceptance of the sacrifice that had been, that had been made was the fire falling on the, the place where God was said to dwell. Friends, on a cross at Calvary, Jesus became the final Passover lamb and shed his blood. He himself then presented his sacrifice to the Father. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. And then 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, the fire fell again. And this time it was not one pillar of fire, but a seemingly a pillar that fell and then divided and split until a tongue of fire rested over each one of those disciples, each one of those people, essentially marking each one out by God to say, you are my temple, you are my dwelling place. And it is in this way, friends, that you and I are representatives of God in this world that we live. We are to be places where the space that God inhabits and the space that we inhabit overlap, indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And it is through this influence and through this power that we then go out into the world and represent Jesus Christ. But it happens in us like it happened for the disciples when they fully believed in Jesus, when they fully committed to following him, when they surrendered in humility to all of God's will, then they were ready for the day of Pentecost. And friends, it's the same for us we must fully believe in Jesus, not halfway, not partway. We must bring everything that we are and everything that we have in submission, in humble surrender to his will, to his plan, and his purpose. And friends, what we bring emptied like that, God is able to fill by the presence and power of his blessed Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for salvation through your blood that was shed on the cross. Father, we thank you for the promised presence of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you will help each one of us to live in that place where we are fully persuaded that your Son is exactly who he claimed to be. God come in the flesh to be the Savior of mankind. That we commit our lives fully to following him. That we would empty ourselves out in complete consecration and that your spirit would fill and cleanse our hearts. Lord, we may not all fully understand everything that you did on the day of Pentecost, and we may not all fully understand what you want to do in our own hearts. But Lord, regardless of how little or how much we understand, would you put a desire in each one of our hearts to want everything that you have to give and then Lord to present ourselves as a living sacrifice that you would receive and cleanse and fill.